Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, Annie Highwater, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air, and I'm here with my co-host, Kayla Solomon. Hi, Kayla. How are you? Good morning. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Dominique Simone Levine, the creator of the Allies in Recovery website. Hi, Dominique. Good morning, everyone. Good to be here. So today we're going to do a continuation of a topic that we've covered in the past, which is treatment. And I'm hoping that Dominique can kind of open it up for us and get us started. It's a big topic, treatment, finding treatment, getting your loved one in treatment, right? Craft spends a lot of time teaching you how to engage your loved one into treatment. And with the pandemic, the treatment system, which sort of was fair to Midland at best, very up and down, depending on when and where you went and how much you paid and who paid, is far worse. And so we're having uh, real trouble getting our folks into standard treatment out there. Allies in Recovery is making a point in the next four to six weeks to cover different areas of additional, quote, treatments and wellness care that families and their loved ones might investigate that could help with addiction, that can help with anxiety and with depression. Some pretty strong evidence of very simple things out there, like uh, Michael Pollan talking about the biggest difference in nutrition with someone in our country is not access to food. It's whether you cook it at home. If you cook it at home, the differences in poverty and food deserts and everything else goes away. If you have somebody cooking at home, you eat better. Even if the food isn't necessarily of the top quality, you wipe away any difference in obesity and poor nutrition. So what are the ideas that we can come up with when you can't get your loved one into that formal treatment? We're looking at the importance of the gut in health of the vagal nerve. There are lots of ideas that we're coming up with. And today, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the impediments to treatment by the family member. And what I mean by that is sometimes the family member has ideas or dislikes something or wants or has an agenda that isn't necessarily just to get their loved one into the best treatment. And I mean that with every amount of open-hearted love that when a grandmother is being forced to choose between raising a three-year-old or getting the mother into treatment, if those two things are contrary to one another, there's an impediment to getting that daughter into treatment. The mother prefers to focus what she does have in her energies to taking care of the young child. Very tough, tough talk. Or the mother we just were talking about that maybe is easily believing what her loved one is telling her because she doesn't want X, Y, or Z. Or she wants X, Y, and Z. So I I do think a lot of family members misunderstand what we're talking about on the Allies website when we're talking about creating that list of resources and doing the investigation ahead of time and then waiting. 
what I find is a lot of family members make that list and can't wait to have the conversation. And so kind of force the conversation. And instead of waiting, waiting, waiting for the right time to introduce particular things with the understanding that they might not take anything on your list, they might not be ready, willing, or able to use what's on your list, but that your resources are are seeds. They're like seeds that you're trying to cultivate. And actually waiting is also an important key in that. Waiting for the right time to have that conversation. Waiting for those wishes or dips. And also having the good communication skills in your back pocket before you're addressing the wishes or dips. And I find that a lot of the time families are so desperate. And I I don't say this in a negative or a bad way. Totally understand because there is so much concern for the welfare of their loved one. But they make the list and they do the research on the resources and then they kind of try and force it on to the loved one. I don't think that that's necessarily the optimal way to go about doing it, if that makes sense. I think we need to talk a little bit about anxiety here, because when I'm listening to you, that's what I hear. If you look at what it feels like to be living with somebody who's really in a difficult situation or exhibiting dangerous behavior, using or even behaving in ways that are possibly at risk, your anxiety is going to be up. You're, you're definitely going to have this experience of danger and a cortisol reaction and fight or flight, and you're going to be in survival because you're concerned about their survival. So it's not this separate piece. It's that there's this connection. And when you are communicating from the place of anxiety, it never goes well. It never goes well because there's a few options that can happen. One is you wind up speaking in a more pressured way. Your anxiety gets communicated and you wind up not being able to stay calm. There's no way to be able to communicate effectively from that place. And the other person often feels shamed, blamed, scared themselves, and you're raising their anxiety. So what winds up happening is this cycle of reactivity. So you're reactive, communicating reactivity. You're communicating from your survival place. That does not work out in terms of having somebody receive what you're saying. It's another reason, and we talk about this all the time, stepping back, calming down, and waiting. Because waiting is one of our primary tools in craft. So if you have a toolbox, think about waiting as a tool. Put it in your toolbox and use it first before you do anything. I like that, Kayla. I like what you're saying. And there's, there's a few things to kind of add on to that. Remember, waiting doesn't mean you're going to wait calmly and patiently. That means sitting with your anxiety and pain and desperation, right? It means sitting and understanding that if you don't wait, it actually can be more disastrous and less likely that your loved one is going to go and take those opportunities that you're presenting to them. The other thing that you said, Kayla, that just kind of got me thinking, how did you say it? You said something about a person is less likely less likely to hear what you're saying when you're talking out of anxiety and also when you're experiencing your own anxiety and desperation and pain 
you're more likely not to hear what the other person is saying to you. Right. And a lot of the time, if your loved one is throwing up barriers to treatment, then chances are they're basically telling you, I don't want to do that. I don't I don't want to do that. And we often miss them, miss those cues and they kind of are hiding. They're not saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that because they're afraid of you being disappointed, you being disappointed in them, you getting upset. They don't want to deal with that. So they throw up barriers. Oh, I can't I can't do that because of this. And there's all sorts of multitude of reasons why I can't do it. So if you start to hear all sorts of uh, reasons why or barriers that your loved one is putting up in the way of why they can't do something, then you should probably put it away for a little while. And you need to do a little bit more listening and being calm and patient and waiting. I'm also going to say the reason why you want to do that is because you're setting yourself up to be lied to, to be gaslighted, and you're setting your loved one up to lie and gaslight. So you want to take that piece out of it and go, you know what, I'm going to respect right now that maybe your loved one isn't open to it. I'm going to get out of this. Okay, okay. You know, I'll try again later when you hear a wish or a dip. There's so much focus on doing that conversation and doing it right, doing it so you get to a yes. The pressure is all on, right? As opposed to goal number one in that first talk is to pass them the list. Here's the list. We've worked it out. Here are all all the doors we believe will open when you're ready. Here. That's it. We're going to put it on the side of the fridge so that nobody sees it but us, but it's right there in case you need it. I'm going to text it to you so you have it on your phone. You know, and we'll talk about it again sometime. We'll talk about it again in a few days. Whatever you need for yourself, really, to keep the touch point if, you, if that's what you need. This business of patience and doing nothing, being in action, is so critically important because as somebody who's struggled with this a lot of her adult life, I can tell you that I looked up AA way before I walked through that door. But when I was ready, that door was open and I walked through it. And I keep telling people that, you know, you need you need a little bit of willingness and you need the message of recovery to be there at the moment you have that willingness. And that sounds a little abstract, but it's just what happened to me car went down the ditch. I spent the weekend with the dog in, you know, in the back of the car puking, couldn't get out of the ditch, couldn't get home, got pulled out by the police. You know, just your random weekend for me turned into the moment that I was ready because I'd had looked up AA before. The secrecy wasn't holding as well as I'd like grad school, you know, and I walked into an AA meeting and that's after a lot of other treatments. So this is a slow feedback process that you're engaging with your loved one around the potential of getting not just treatment, but anything well, wellness related. I just wrote to a mom. I said, what about, would he go grocery shopping with you? Because he won't come out of the house. Would he go grocery shopping with you? Would he go for a walk with you? Would he, and it has to be with her probably to start, right? So what, where are we with this? It's there's there's just so much incrementalism and the nudging, you know, the nudging is beautiful is really all that's needed here. I did this work here because right. you'll wake up in the in the early morning. You'll feel like 
horrible. And you know you've got an hour or two of going into the worst neighborhood in the whole city to go find some drugs. And really, in that moment, the door to the Suboxone Clinic were open. I would have walked in. There's so many missed opportunities that just responding and understanding that as a family member, you'll know that they're coming and there'll be another one and there'll be another one. So patience and it's okay if it doesn't work and step back and okay, they'll choose. I love this, Dominique, because that's, that's it, right? You put the resource out there, you, you walk away and basically you are waiting for things to possibly not go well for your loved one to have something happen that Another thing, another thing that they have to get beyond, the car breaks down, they lose their job, and then you're waiting to hear it. You're just going to be that reflective listener that just sits and listens, right? And uh, you're going to wait to hear something like, God, you know, this always happens to me. And did Okay, okay. So what do you think you could do to make it better? I want to jump in on this one because... I'm going back to the reflective listening. We This is what came up in our group this week because the frustration of like having these difficult conversations or having bad behavior and then being attacked and accused. And I think if you could continually practice the reflective listening where somebody's talking to you about their frustration and you start mirroring them, sounds like, so your car broke down. Tell me more about that. Oh my God, blah, 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 blah. So, oh my God, da, 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 da. And you just keep repeating. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. And what's interesting is when you do that, you then have another tool, by the way, for waiting. Because if you're reflective listening, you are not obnoxiously intervening and saying things because you're not allowed when you're reflective listening. It's not about you. It's not about your opinions. It's not about what you're noticing. And in the kind of reflective listening I do, I don't even end to it with what do you think you should do? Because to me, that takes away from it. You finish it, you summarize what they said, and then you say, wow, that must be real. It sounds like this is really a hard time. You know, that's got to be really rough. Or it makes sense to me that you would be frustrated because your car broke down and you have no money to repair it. That makes it makes complete sense to me that it will be that that's really difficult for you, period. And then you stop talking. It's waiting. It's, more it's waiting. You don't say, what do you think you should do? Or what do you think you're going to do about that? Because that's assumed. Okay. It's assumed. What do you think you're going to do about that is a fixing it statement. So I've had to learn with the, with my listening that I can't even say that. Okay. You know, I just, what happens, like I did this last night with my daughter, she was upset about something and I just listened and mirrored back. And then I said to her, that sounds really hard. That sounds like this is really difficult. That sounds like you must be really disappointed. And it was interesting because then she went to problem solving. I did not say, what are you going to do about it? Because people go to problem solving if you don't ask them. And then it's her thing. And what was really strange is she processed the whole thing on her own. And I'm like, oh, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And I was like, okay. And it's all yours. And, and I didn't say, and I didn't have right. fix it. And it's all yours. And, and you said that's a hundred dollars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hopefully she just knows. But also, I, I like kind of what we're talking about here too, Kayla, because these are ways to add into that space of discomfort for the family member to sit and wait. 
there are things you can do during yes. that period of sitting and waiting and reflective listening is one of them. And there's actually other things that you can do. So we've talked about recovery capital and recovery capital is just the resources that are actually available to your loved one that they can tap into that exists. It already exists. So making a list maybe of things that your loved one is already doing and then reinforcing it or make a list of things that they used to like to do and find a way to encourage that without bringing up substance use disorder or their problems or anything like that. Oh, hey, look, I noticed there's a CrossFit gym that's opening up up the street. Do you think that would be a good gift for the holidays? Would you be in? I'm just trying to come up with a gift for you for the holidays. And I know you like to exercise or, you know, introducing a little bit more of the strengths and encouraging. Actually, these are recovery activities right? Maybe your loved one likes to cook. Hey, I was thinking, what about, you know, I know, I don't know, what is it? William Sonoma or Sonoma, William Sonoma, right? A little ad here. Yeah, right. (laughs) I was thinking maybe we could go take a cooking class together. Would you be interested in doing that? Right. Or can I buy a cooking class for you and your girlfriend? Do you think you two or all of these different things that you can introduce and tap into and You, as the loved one, can feel like you're encouraging positive things and you're starting to recognize, oh, they do have positive things in their life. No matter how teeny tiny and small it is, there is good. There is good in there. If you do something like get them to accept the gift of a gym and they go even only once or twice a week and they use maybe one time less a week, You've really shifted the amount of use right there, and you've done it by substituting a proactive behavior for the drug use. And so that, that, that's a fundamental part of community reinforcement and family training. That's why it's called community reinforcement and family training craft. And you see it much more when they do it with adolescents, adolescent community reinforcement and family training, the, the CRA, the community reinforcement. Half the work of the case manager or the therapist is finding activities in the community that compete with the weed at 15. So it's very important what we're saying here, not just in terms of a reward, but in terms, because they're also rewards, right? So ideally, it's something you can take away if you have to. But also, this is about recovery versus abstinence, because what happens is that recovery, abstinence is about having the not doing. It's about creating a space. So you basically have a hole. You stop doing something that fills you up. You have a hole. And recovery is about how do you fill the hole? What you're both describing is how do you start filling the hole with meaningful things before you stop using? And what happens is any of us do this. Like once you start tapping into things that you like or people that you never would have met before, things like that, you're basically creating more of a life and more meaning. And that's what's missing for people. They're, they're lost in this world of negativity and use and feeling like the only tools that they have to feel better is to use. And once you start doing other things that actually bring you pleasure and joy and goodness and meeting positive people, you're already pulling yourself away from that pattern. And that's what this is about. So so I think this is actually a brilliant discussion. Instead of waiting for somebody to go to treatment, it's like, how do you start 
helping them access goodness in their life and positivity in their life, including with you. It could be that you say, let's cook once a week together um, because you're a great cook. And, you know, I would love to cook with you. Would you be willing to do that? Then you have to be willing to accept the disappointment when it doesn't happen. But that doesn't mean that you don't make the offer. I agree with you. And it, it gives it gives the loved one some kind of an action to do. And it also helps direct the family member to positive things and to see the positive things that can be versus focusing on one, I'm going to say focusing on your own agenda, because that's that's what trying to get them to go and do what you think that they should be doing. You need to be in a 30 day residential treatment and they're just not biting right now. So getting away from your own agenda and finding that positive, it just fills the space. Like you said, it fills that hole for both people, the loved one and the family member. Right. But you have to have a little bit of willingness on the part of of the person with the drug and alcohol problem. And so we're not saying here and I can hear the family in my head going, nothing competes with heroin. Are you kidding? He doesn't like anything. He he wants to do anything. Right. And so that's why I was suggesting that incrementalism of just, hey, you know what, let's let's plan a meal and go to the grocery store together and get the ingredients. That's it. That's yeah. it. It doesn't have to compete with the high of heroin, but it's just an alternative that for 45 minutes, he goes, wow, I didn't even think about getting high. Wow. Right. You know, just that kind of internal feedback that you'll never hear or you may hear as you continue to do craft because they'll they'll start telling you everything. Right, Lori? I mean, oh, your yeah. son says everything to you. Tells me everything. Yeah. To the point where I get anxious and I'm like, I got to talk myself down a little bit. But no, I, I totally agree with you, Dominique, that actually doing it in incremental, especially early on, because you may get a lot of no's in having to have to be understanding that I'm going to get a lot of no's. So I tried a few things when my son went into early recovery and I found that he was, you know, in his bedroom for hours and hours and I wanted him to come out be a part of the world, get a job, you know, all of these things. But I found that I started with this little thing, a little challenge that I did with myself. And it was, I'm going to ask him every single day or every other day, something like that, where I'm going to just invite him for coffee to go grab a cup of coffee at Cumberland Farms or McDonald's or nothing big. And if he says no, I'm going to go, okay, Do you want me to bring you back a cup of coffee? Right. And that's it. And that's it. I'm not going to pressure him. Nothing. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And eventually he, he said no for a long time. I'll tell you that. And now looking back, I realize there's a lot of reasons why he said no and why it was so difficult for him just to go down to Cumberland's to get a cup of coffee and sit in that car. But eventually he did say yes, and he did go with me. And I made it a point that when we were in the car driving to get that cup of coffee, I wasn't bringing anything up. I didn't bring a thing up. And if we just sat together and listened to music, that was it. That was it. And just that to me was like, okay, I got some positive stuff going on here. And I I want him to know that when we get in this car, it's a safe space for him. And I'm not going to bring anything up. None of his 
problems or is it, you know, a substance use disorder? That is not what this is about. This is genuinely about going and grabbing a cup of coffee and heading back home. And maybe this doesn't ring true for you. Maybe your loved one is high functioning, is in the world, is a workaholic, is never home. I mean, this we're really talking about people with addiction. And I have observed this for over 25 years, 27 years. People with addiction have a really hard time showing up, right? It's part of, I think, mental illness. It's part of addiction. If you don't show up, it gets worse. You don't show up more, it gets worse. You stop practicing showing up, you just stop showing up. And so leaving the house becomes harder. And we can talk ourselves into just an amazing amount of fear. And that has to be counterforced somehow. In, in your own recovery, you have to learn to show up for yourself. And so what I heard us saying today about, don't say, what do you think you can do about it? Let them come up with it and you'll see they'll start problem solving on their own. And that gives them the tiniest bit of of self-esteem for taking responsibility, maybe. You know, now they're in the pros and cons, which is a better place to be than not thinking about it at all. And maybe they're even saying it out loud to you, which is even a more important internal motivator, right? Lori, you've said this in your trainings. If you say it, it's more meaningful than having it told to you. You should get a job. Now, and then quietly you say to yourself, you know what, maybe I should just go look for a little volunteer work because I'm going out of my mind. Which one is stronger? And so it, it just seems to me that there's a lot of layering and a lot of subtlety, but it's really an hour, our court a lot of the time to create that space for them. I would also add, because we need to be closing up here, is that treatment is a continuum and that it's not somebody's going into detox or rehab or going in inpatient. Treatment is about changing things. It's about shifting dynamics. It's about taking care of yourself differently. It's about engaging with the world. It's about finding what's positive. And so that's what we have a tremendous amount of power over is helping the person feel connected on some level and possibly engage in the world. Not that we're going to make them, but we can be that with them. We can create that. And we have to calm ourselves down or not bring the anxiety to the relationship. So I'm not saying that when you back off, you're not going to have anxiety. What we're saying is that use the tools to deal with your anxiety, meditation, exercise, positive self-talk, reframing things. And then bring your calmer, more connected self to the relationship, because that is part of the treatment. And so if you could see yourself as the beginning of a treatment process where you're engaging with the person differently and you're modeling different behavior and you're modeling, as Lori said, just being safe space for the person without judgment, without criticism and without telling people what to do, then you become part of the treatment process. But it's a much more passive process as opposed to this active in your face engaged with the person process it's more being with it's more about acceptance and i think that that's really a good place for us to stop is think about how you get to be part of the treatment by changing the dynamic awesome great conversation ladies we'll talk thank you see you next week bye thanks for listening We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily.
If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.